0: Let me read it for us now. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule is in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, array in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Hand over to Mike, who's going to come and speak to us. Thank you. Please do keep your Bibles open at Psalm 110. We're doing a series in the Psalms, and uh, we've come to this one, known as a royal psalm. Well, can you remember a time like this? The turbulence of the last couple of years in our nation and in our world has been unbelievable, hasn't it? Hardly a week goes by without a terror attack in Europe. We've got North Korea firing bombs over Japan. We've got Donald Trump leading the free world. We've got Brexit and a British government held together with sellotape. Whichever way you lean politically, I think we can all agree we need great leaders. Most of us have no influence on the big decisions that government takes that shape our lives. If a government decides to cut your benefits, what happens to you and your family? If a government allows universities to increase tuition fees again, what will happen to you or your children? What if the government makes a hash of Brexit? What will happen to Britain? What if they make it impossible for you to get a visa and stay here or study here? Or if they pass laws that say your religious position is extreme, which will probably come. Or if our government decides to join in a war. We have no power in any of this. You know, we need great leaders, but we're so powerless. We need great leaders, but even the greatest human leaders are destined to fail in some way, aren't they? That is why when you understand it, this poem, Psalm 110, is such awesome news. It is really good news because it tells us of the great leader we wish we had, the one The world is waiting for. But let's be honest, Psalm 110 is pretty hard to understand. What did you think when Liz was reading it? What? Now, this week, I did something very sensible. I grabbed my wife to help with sermon preparation. It's always a huge help because she's full of good ideas and common sense. And common sense isn't that common. Now, after we read the Psalm, I had her sitting there in my study. And I asked what she thought, and I had a pen ready and poised in my hand to take down the uh, pearls of wisdom. And Melissa sort of thought for a moment, and then she said, well, this is a weird one. (laughs) It wasn't very encouraging. Hmm, a 3,000-year-old Hebrew poem about a king. I can see why we might find it a little bit remote. And I want to try and persuade you today to bring the remoteness close, and to persuade you that Psalm 110 actually contains the best news that you will read all week. But to start off with, I want to encourage you. Psalm 110 has always confused people. Just look at this time in the life of Jesus where Jesus quoted it to some people. Here it comes, I think. Is that working? Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. I don't think this is working, Dave, can I? Sorry about this, everyone. There's this thing you have to plug out into the side of the thing, and we haven't put it in. Okay, we've got it now. Well done, thanks. So he's asked them about who the son of David is, and they reply, uh, the, the Messiah is, and they reply, son of David. He said to them, okay, he's going to quote the psalm, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, notice, first of all, the, uh, the authority of this psalm. Uh, Jesus himself says that the writer is King David, speaking by the Holy Spirit. That is about as authoritative as you can get. God himself speaks through a human agent, David. And so the poetry and the words of the Bible are not just interesting literature. They are the very word of God. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, says that all scripture is breathed out by God. And therefore, it's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word is not just words, it's breathed out by God. It's specially inspired, it's faultless. Notice, too, these, these Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a bunch of people who really knew their Bible. They were totally thrown by the question, they've got no answer. They know that David wrote the psalm, and David says, the Lord says to my Lord, and yet they're trying to figure out how can that be the Messiah. They've been hoping for this Messiah all their lives, this Messiah, a great king, who would sort out the world. He would restore the fortunes of Israel. He'd bring peace and justice. And he would be a descendant of David. They knew that. And so all their hopes were pinned on him. And then Jesus throws them this impossible question. He throws them the curveball or the googly. If the Messiah is going to be a descendant of the King David, why does David call him Lord? So it turns out that Psalm 110 is a bit like top trumps. When I was a child, uh, we used to have this, this game called top trumps, and you had a set of cards, and it would be on a, t- a topic like cars. And you'd get half the cards, and your friend would get half the cards. I used to play with my brother, and uh, you'd, say, you'd choose some of the criteria on the card, like uh, speed, top speed, 90 miles an hour and then the other person, if they had less than that, had to give you their card. But the top trump was the best card, and it was the one that always won the game. And here we find that Psalm 110 is the top trump of the Bible. Once Jesus has played it, look what happens. Verse 46, no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. That's it. So if you find yourself struggling to understand this psalm, you are in good company. However, unlike these Pharisees, we have a distinct advantage because we now have the key to unlock it, and the key has a name, Jesus. Now I know that you know the story of the Sunday school teacher who says to the children, children, what's got a bushy tail is grey and buries nuts in the ground for winter? And the kids are all sitting there going like this. And one of them says, I, I know the answer is Jesus, but it really sounds like a squirrel. <laughs> now, in this case, the answer really is Jesus. And I want to talk through the parts of this psalm quite quickly, just to lay it out for you, and then come back and use the key, Jesus, to unlock them. There are three parts. It's about the king, God's king, but the priest, the king's a priest, And a warrior. Firstly, the king. Look with me again at Psalm 110. And notice the use of capital letters in the first verse. The Lord, capitals, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So how many lords are there in verse 1? This isn't a trick question. There are two, one of them's in capitals and one is in uh, lower case. Now, who are these lords? The first one is the lord with capitals and it is actually, underneath there is a word, Yahweh. Yahweh, it's a Hebrew word and it's God's personal name. Many, many years before this was written, God had, God's people, the Israelites, were enslaved, they were oppressed, they were living in Egypt, they were under an oppressive rule, and they were crying out to God for help, and God heard them and came to rescue them. And he appointed Moses as a great leader over these people. Moses had been brought up in the, in the royal household. He knew how it all worked. And God called Moses to meet him out in the desert and he brought him to this place where there was a a bush or a a shrub or a small tree. It was on fire, but it was burning and it never burned up. It never gave up. It just kept burning and burning. And God said to him, take off your shoes, your sandals, because you're on holy ground, the place where you're standing. So Moses in this place, he met met the living God somehow in this place with this burning. God's presence is like a burning fire. And God speaks to him and gives him his commission to go and lead the people. And Moses says, I can't do this. I can't do it. I'm, I'm, just, I'm not even very good at speaking in public. And God says, this will be the sign to them that they will know that I have sent you. Tell them this name. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. And the name, the word there in the Hebrew language is this word, Yahweh. Yahweh, it means I am who I am. In other words, I am the one and only, the one who is. Now, some people think of this in, as philosophical. They say, well, God is the only non-contingent being. He doesn't rely on anything else. But in Exodus, the context means more likely. You have no, there's nothing else is God. All these other gods in Egypt are false. I am the only one. That's why you don't have to fear. The Pharaoh or any of the gods he pretends to be the incarnation of, Yahweh is the one and only, the incomparable, unique and only God. And this name, Yahweh, was held to be so sacred by the Jewish people that it was never actually spoken. They wouldn't say it. It was so in awe of it in reverence for God's personal name. To this day, if you read, if you hear Hebrew. Rabbis and scholars reading the Old Testament, they substitute another word. They won't say Yahweh. Such reverence do they have for God. And so our translators, out of respect for them, use this capital letters, as you can see again in verse one. The Lord, the, the small caps. So the first Lord, okay, still with me? Is God. God says, Yahweh says. He speaks a solemn utterance and he speaks to a second Lord. Sentence case. Now this Lord is a human king but he's not named. But just look at what God says to him. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now the right hand is the place of power, the place of strength. If you want to say uh, that... you're going to give somebody influence and authority and power you put them at your right hand in the ancient world so god himself get this the almighty god the only one is conferring the highest possible authority on a human king who is this and he says sit there until i've made your enemies a footstool for your feet in other words uh, sit, this is as good as done, but you wait there because I'm going to establish your kingdom and all your enemies will be vanquished. It will surely come. The idea of a footstool for your feet, it comes from a gesture of them being subjected and beaten and admitting that they're done. Symbolic gesture of total victory. A footstool for the feet. Sometimes in the ancient world, they actually put their foot on the neck of a king to, and he would. it's like going, I'm tapping out. Done. And then in verse 2, look what more his God says. He says, The Lord Yahweh will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. A scepter, we even have this still in the British monarchy, which is uh, not a shadow of what it once was, but they still have a scepter when they are being appointed. And it's a symbol of rule, the scepter of authority. And here it says, It will go out over the lands. Recalling an ancient promise that God God made to Judah back in Genesis chapter 49, that the scepter would not depart from his line, the line that King David came from. God will extend the mighty scepter, and it will be from Zion. Zion was a hill in Jerusalem. So this is a human king, and he's going to reign on the earth, and God will establish him. And God himself says, I'll command you to rule in the midst of your enemies. No one will be able to stand against you. Your rule is guaranteed. You will be the king. Now, the first people who heard this poem knew that it was the best news that they'd ever heard because they lived in a small country that was surrounded by big enemies. Global powers rose and fell in the ancient world, and they rose and fell around little Israel. Think about where Israel is on the map. You'd have global powers to the south, Egypt, Egypt, To the east, Assyria and Babylon, to the north. Israel was never really a global power. And at any point, somebody else's army could roll through the land. It's a bit like the Netherlands. No no offense to anyone Dutch. Um, So they they could be swallowed up. They felt they could be swallowed up at any moment. So they naturally could, could be tempted to feel insecure, frightened. Who can they trust and turn to? A lot of their kings were losers. The psalm says, trust God. He will establish his king. Now, many of us here from Britain or from other Western countries have not experienced war in our lifetime. So we have lost the sense of fear and the cost of war. We have enjoyed lives of abnormal peace and safety. We are the lucky ones. Did you know that only eight Colombian people are allowed a visa to work in the UK each year. Eight Colombians. And one of them is a member of our church. So glad you got the visa. Now, I asked Mario one time, tell me what it's like living here compared to being back in Colombia. And I was expecting him, I don't know what I thought he would say, but I didn't expect this. His first response, and he said it with some passion, was the experience of living in peace. Being at peace is great. I've spent my whole life in a country that has been at war for 50 years. Peace is amazing. Yes, it is. And this psalm promises a leader, a king, who will bring peace and safety to the world because his rule is established by God. There's nothing insecure about it. So, who is this Lord? The second one, the human king. In the Old Testament, in Second Samuel chapter 7, God had made the most astonishing, wonderful promises to King David. The story of the Bible here kind of zooms in on David and his family. And that means that the hope of the world zooms in on David and his family. And God says this to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. All those promises to a human, David. One day from your line, from your family, will come this king who will be established forever. So the devout Jewish people expected God to keep his promise to David. They waited for a Messiah, a king, a chosen king from David's line. But notice again how Psalm 110 throws a spanner in the works because look at underneath the bit where it says Psalm 110, it's a psalm of David. That means David wrote it. So David is calling his own son, my Lord. Eh? And if that isn't confusing enough, the, th- the fog gets even thicker in verse 4 because God again speaks and he adds even more confusion. Look what it says in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek? Who <laughs> he? So not only is this person a king, right? Promised king. He's also going to be a priest. And these are very different roles, not usually combined. See, a priest's job is to care for people and to teach them and bring them to God. A priest is a bit like a cross between a vicar and a GP. They cared for the spiritual needs and the physical needs of the frail and the sick and the vulnerable in the Old Testament. They brought aid and help. If you're wounded, the priest is someone that comes and binds up your wounds, prays for you. When you go to the doctor, isn't it great when they have a nice bedside manner? you doctors here? You trainee doctors? It's very important. We're now getting to the age where doctors look young. And sometimes they're kind of a bit offhand. I took my son to Manchester Children's Hospital to see a physiotherapist. a young Irish woman. I was probably old enough to be her dad. Oh, she had the most wonderful bedside manner. She's talking to my son and just asking him lovely questions and really understanding his condition and how he was and just not making him feel small, but really, really helping him and just be, being so warm and affirming. And uh, Oh, she was just lovely. I could have sat there all day just listening to a lovely, lilting Irish accent. And in fact, at one point, I thought, I, you know, I feel slightly in love with you in an appropriate way. And I, I, I thought, I wonder if she could give me physio. You know, I, I've got a bit of a stiff neck here. Man, can we sign on here and uh, just to be around someone who cares, so kind and reassuring? And that's what the priest was supposed to be like. And these priests had an important religious function. They taught about God and they offer sacrifices. They go to the temple where God's presence is and they bring your sacrifice and they bring it to God. So you know you've sinned and broken God's law. But the priest says, don't worry, bring your sacrifice and I'll, I'll prepare it for you and I'll bring it in and, and we'll, we'll make sure you're right with God again. The valued members of the community, these priests, when they did their work well, A good priest would sympathize with people's weakness. Pray for them. But in our text, interesting, we're not just dealing with an ordinary priest. Have a look at it again. Uh, God swears. He won't change his mind. He says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What is that? Who is Melchizedek? Now, way, way back in the first few pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 14, want to read it later uh, abram abram uh, uh, was uh, living in the land and it, abram actually had a pretty big household he wasn't just a camper he lived in, in tents but he had 308 armed men in his household so he's really a merchant prince and abraham's got this nephew lot who's always seemed to be ended up in trouble and there was a big battle went on all these kings were raiding cities and taking people off and in the middle of it all lot and his family get swept along and they get kidnapped and everything lot and everything he owns is is taken so Abraham says oh no lot's got in trouble again i'm gonna have to help him so he gets his 308 trained men and he says right guys we're going we're going after lot we're going to get him back we never leave a man behind so they go and they spring an offensive on a much larger force and it, you know, by God's grace and by their good planning, they, they win a great victory. And they rescue Lot and they actually take a load of treasure off these kings. So it's a great, great story. And then Abraham goes and he camps in a valley and they're all relaxing and kind of probably healing their wounds. And then this really strange thing happens in Genesis 14. It's really weird. Uh, and then it, it says, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivers your enemies into your hand. So this Melchizedek comes out, and he's a king of Salem, and he's a priest. And He comes and he just blesses him in the name of God. And then it says, "Abraham gave him 10% of everything they'd taken. Give him 10%. And you know what? He's never heard of again. <laughs> it's like, because of it just kind of fades away into the fog. Where's he gone? Can't see him, you know? Until Psalm 110. Here he pops up again. Weird. Look at it with me again. I told you this was weird today. My wife said it. She's always right. The Lord has sworn, verse 4, and will not change his mind, you are that you king are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the priests were supposed to be from the family line of Levi. They were Levites. But that Levitical priesthood had failed. It was sinful. It was deeply flawed. Such priests could, would never care for and help the people as they should. And Melchizedek predates them. He's so ancient. He's back in the days of Abraham. So he's kind of un unsullied by the antics of the priesthood and then melchizedek has this funny quality he sort of appears and then he goes and nobody knows where he came from or where he's going to go hebrews says he had neither beginning nor end he comes into the bible story and leaves there's something timeless about him and melchizedek is the king of salem which is jerusalem and he's a priest see how it's all coming together King, priest, rules in Jerusalem. Somehow different from everybody else, but he's a human. You See why they chose his name? Thirdly, and very briefly, this king in Psalm 110 is a warrior. This kind of gets a bit gory here. This is where we go from a PG to a 15. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. This king now is not just sort of sitting at God's right hand being exalted. He's down in the midst of the fight. He's fighting with the army. He's down with the people. He's mixing it up. And these nations here are the enemies of God's people. They're the enemies that would, would, would slaughter them and, and, and trash their towns and take their stuff and, and take, you know, rape the women and take the children into slavery. That's what they used to do. And so he says, no, this king will defeat them all. And the fight is ongoing. By the end of the psalm, he's drinking from a brook, but he's still ready to fight because it's still going on. So although God has promised that this king's rule will be forever, the fight is continuing. So, king, priest, and warrior... Who on earth could fit this description? It was a great mystery for centuries. In 1946, three Bedouin shepherds were in an area called Qumran, near the Dead Sea. And they were tending their flocks. And one of the shepherds, who was called Jamar Muhammad Khalil, was throwing rocks into a a hole you could see up in the hillside into a cave mouth. He's probably bored. He's just throwing rocks up there, trying to get the rock into a hole. And finally, he threw one, and it went in, and they heard this sound of shattering, like pottery. So they went up a couple days later, and they squeezed inside this little cave entrance, and they found 10 jars, really, really ancient jars. And all but two of them were empty, but these two, inside, they found some scrolls that were wrapped in linen. And as they unwrapped them, they realized they were handling something that was very, very, very old, a couple of thousand years old. And what they'd done was to stumble on the greatest discovery of manuscripts manuscripts in modern times. Now, over the next few years, in the early 50s, that site was crawled over by archaeologists and treasure hunters and others. And they found 11 caves full of these manuscripts some of them were sort of sold they were crumbling one of them was was on a piece of copper and it was carved in and a lot of them actually they had a, a scroll that was almost the whole of isaiah and these documents became known as the dead sea scrolls you might have heard of them it was an ancient library it had been hidden for a couple of thousand years and it included lots of copies of bible books which really affirmed that our bible is is a, a very very accurate text and commentaries on the Bible, and things like the rules of the community, because this community were living out there near the Dead Sea, trying to purify themselves and be ready for God. And they were waiting for the Messiah to come. Now, in the 11th cave, which was only found in 1956, they found a scroll which has become known as 11Q Melchizedek. Because in this scroll, these these, um, people living out in the desert had tied together verses from the book of Isaiah and from um, uh, Leviticus and from other places which which talked about a, a wonderful rule of a great king who would come and he would bring peace. And he would also... Uh, deal with all the enemies of, of Israel, but he would also bring them back to God and assemble the people, gather them in from the nations, and they'd be forgiven, and a new day would come. And these people out in the desert had called this mysterious figure Melchizedek. Now you know why they did it, because they'd read Psalm 110. Now scholars who've studied this scroll, and I once spent 30 hours researching it, that's how much of a nerd I am. Scholars who, who have um, looked into this scroll about Melchizedek are, are completely divided about who it could be. There are three options. One is that it's God, a name for God, because the person does stuff that only God can do. But The problem with that is it's clearly a human. The second option is that it's an angel, kind of like a, a top angel who can do amazing things but is not quite God. And the third option that scholars have come up with is a human king, but so exalted he's higher than any other king who's ever lived. And so the riddle remains. None of these will quite do. Who could combine all of those qualities of being a king and a priest and a warrior, being so exalted to the right hand of God, and yet being down in Jerusalem fighting with the people? Now, it's a riddle for everybody except for those of us who know Jesus Christ. The disciples realized this very early on. The very first Christian sermon, which was preached, uh, in, uh, you can read it in Acts chapter 2. Apostle Peter stands up and he preached this sermon and he quotes this psalm right there. In fact, this psalm is the most quoted in the New Testament. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life, raised from the dead, and we are all witnesses of it. both Lord and Messiah. In other words, Jesus Christ, crucified on a hill outside Jerusalem, outside the city gates, has been raised from the dead and raised in his ascension to the right hand of God and now rules as the Messiah. The very one you've been waiting for, you killed. And when they hear that, they are cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They just made the biggest mistake of their lives. You see, for Peter, Jesus was the key to the psalm. And this psalm, therefore, if you think about Jesus in the light of it, it will light him up for you. Think about him as the king, the promised, the long-promised son of David. He was a descendant of David. It's so important in the Bible that this is true. If you read the beginning of Matthew or Luke's gospel, you'll see that they spend ages giving these lists of names. What's the point to prove that he descended from David? Beginning of Romans, Paul says, I'm an apostle of God set apart for the gospel which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture regarding his son who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David. He has to say it because it's so important that Jesus is descended from David. And yet, how much greater than David was he? He never sinned. He never failed. All the promises made to David meet in Jesus Christ. He is both fully human and fully God. It answers the question of how a human could be said to sit at God's right hand because he is God, the eternal son, equal to God. He's always been with him and yet come to be one of us to be our king. He's the king. We sang it, Jesus, you are my king. That means God will establish his kingdom throughout the world and his enemies will, f- will fall. But he's also a priest. He's full of mercy and compassion. He's tender. He's one who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He's not just mighty. He's not just a lion. He's the lamb as well. He understands what it's like to feel like you do. He was tempted in every way like you are, except he never sinned. And he brings your plea, your feeble plea, before God, and he represents you to God. And he's a warrior. Jesus is powerful and strong. He goes to all the harshest enemies in our lives and in our world and he defeats them if you read through mark's gospel we've been doing it in our life group this year you see jesus defeating one enemy after another here's a guy who's been excluded from the community because he's got leprosy no one will even go near him he's unclean jesus touches him and he's made clean the leprosy goes forever here's a woman who's been bleeding she's got hemorrhage she's been bleeding for years she spent all her money on doctors she touches jesus rope and she's healed and cleansed forever sickness he can he can deal with the enemy of sickness he can deal with the enemy of of storms and weather wow think about the weather that has hit this world in the last few weeks hurricanes destroying billions of dollars worth of damage done in uh houston and now in the caribbean last week storms that come through wrecking wrecking everything and jesus could could stand in front of a mighty storm and say peace be still and it calmed down immediately He was a powerful victor over the spiritual world, those who were possessed by demons under the power of evil spirits. Jesus spoke, and they were delivered. And finally, he was the victor uh, over death, even death itself. He could raise people from the dead. He's the only person in history who combines all of these qualities, the king, the priest, and the warrior, divine and human, the lion and the lamb. And that means that Jesus is the leader that we need. He's the leader that we need. And so this psalm is written to reassure you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you can rely on him. You can rely on him. There is a leader you can trust implicitly. It's glorious. It really is. It lifts our eyes above the workaday world to an ancient world of kingship and nobility and honor And it says, God will establish Jesus as the king and the priest and the warrior. So that just leaves us as we close with one final question, which we often ask here. What is the real world cash value? What does this mean for you and me on Monday morning? Well, I think the answer is found in a strange verse, verse 3. We're going to close with this. Look back, with you? This verse, uh, verse 3. Your troops will be willing... On your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. A host of volunteers, troops, are coming out. They come, as it were, from the morning's womb. First thing, they're they're, they're up early, they're there, and they come willing on the day of battle, ready to fight. That means they're ready to sacrifice their lives for this king. They're willing. They're not grudging conscripts. They love the king and they gladly serve him and they rally to his cause. But one thing has been bugging me about this all week. What would you make you so eager to serve a king? So eager to serve a king that you would lay down your life for his cause, give your all, devote your time, your energy, your money, your resources to a higher cause than yourself. What is it that would motivate you to serve king? A king so willingly? And I think the answer is this. Just think how Jesus Christ is king, priest, and warrior. He's a king, but he lays aside all glory and comes to serve, even humbling himself to be a slave, even to death on a cross. What a king. He's a priest, and the priests bring a sacrifice so that people can be forgiven. But what's the sacrifice that Jesus brings? It's himself. His own death on the cross is a sacrifice to pay for our sins, to take them away once for all. So we don't need priests anymore. We've got Jesus. And he's a warrior. But how does he fight? Jesus allows his own body to be crushed, to be piled up in a tomb, so that all of his enemies can be defeated and all of our enemies can be defeated. And we set free from our worst enemies. That is the kind of leader that Jesus is. So what does Jesus call us to now, this great king? Not to a crusade, not to a campaign of military violence. That was one of the biggest mistakes in church history, the period of the Crusades. We shouldn't confuse this with with military action. But to a holy war that is against sin and against the slavery that it brings into our lives and the lives of people around us to be called together as willing volunteers into a, an army an army of ordinary people but with an extraordinary message a message that can change lives a message that can transform communities a message of love and grace even for the loveless our weapons in this army are love and service as we serve the great king jesus christ our high priest the messiah so Will you enlist? Will you enlist? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you not in our own name or in our own strength or in our own righteousness, but we come before you in the name of Jesus and in his strength and in his righteousness. And we thank you for all that he is to us and all that he has done. We thank you that he is the great king that you've appointed to rule over the world and to defeat his enemies. We thank you that he's a priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness and brings us to you and offers a good and wonderful sacrifice and we thank you that he's a warrior he's here with us he's fighting with us in our lives and we pray therefore those of us who know you that we would live for him this week that we would be troops who are willing and glad to serve him on the day of battle and for those here who don't know you lord would you yet send your spirit to draw them to yourself so that they too would find out what it means to know you amen amen